In the summer of 2004, I was 18 years old. As a high school graduate, Brian was just weeks away from leaving home and starting college. And on my way home from swim practice on July 6, I was struck on my driver's side door by a speeding truck about five minutes from my house. The injuries were catastrophic. My heart went across my chest. I sustained shattered ribs, shattered pelvis, collapsed lungs, severe nerve damage to my left shoulder. Pretty much every major organ was damaged or lacerated or failed in some way. I experienced 60% blood loss at the accident scene. My medical team explained to my parents that it would be a good idea to have my family and my friends come in that night to say their final goodbyes. I underwent immediate surgery to repair the heart, the liver, the kidneys, the vital organs. I was given many blood transfusions and, and plasma treatments, and I was able to survive the first 24 hours because of the medical treatment, because of the wonderful care that I received, because of the large amount of blood products that I received. I would ultimately spend about two months in ICU in a coma on life support. And during that time, I had 14 major life-saving operations. I had 36 blood transfusions and 13 plasma treatments. I was resuscitated eight times on the operating table and it was just a very challenging time for my family. If I didn't have all those blood products available during my time of need, I wouldn't have survived. My life since that experience, since leaving the hospital, it's been a, a dream come true. I was able to get back into life again, live my dreams of going to college, doing the swim team, and then a few years later, getting married, and then having a family of my own, having two wonderful children now. Life is so great. And then two years after joining the swim team, I was able to complete my one of my major goals in life at the time was to do the Ironman triathlon. And that was just a, an amazing day, which helped Myself and my parents see that I was able to recover and I was fully healed and back into life again. I wanted to become a, a Red Cross volunteer after leaving the hospital because when I learned how much blood I received when I was an ICU patient, I was so inspired to be able to give back and to say thank you. I began hosting blood drives in my local area and also began donating blood myself. Since leaving the hospital, I've given three gallons. Blood to me is representing life. When a donor goes to a blood drive and they give blood, they're not just giving blood, they're not just giving time, they're giving life to a patient in need. Every two seconds, someone needs blood. I was one of these people and I reflect on my blood donors every single day because they saved myself. They've also saved my son, who's also a blood recipient. And without them taking that short amount of time, I wouldn't be here. My son wouldn't be here. And, and we are forever grateful.
In November 2021, the American Red Cross warned that their blood stocks were critically low. For some blood types, they had less than a day's supply. During the pandemic, donations have fallen by a third. January 2022 is National Blood Donor Month in the US. It also marked a historic moment in the country's blood supply. CBS News has learned the Red Cross is declaring a national blood crisis for the first time. This is a historic shortage, the worst in more than a decade. The problem of chronically low stocks has been worsened by the Omicron variant of the coronavirus and by bad weather. Other countries are having similar problems. In the UK, there are concerns that blood stocks may become critical over the winter. Belgium's Red Cross predicted that they could have been a thousand bags of blood short over the festive period. And France's National Blood Service has reported that blood levels are alarmingly low there too. Blood transfusions are critical for trauma patients, those with sickle cell disease, cancer patients and many others. What is needed to maintain the supply of blood for them? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Today, we're exploring blood transfusions. Joining me in conversation are Maria Kahoot, feature editor at Medical News Today. Hi, Maria. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Baya Lasky. She's the medical director for the American Red Cross. Welcome, Baya. Hello, thanks so much for having me today. Dr. Lasky, what actually is blood? Blood is circulating through our veins and arteries, and it is composed of red cells, white blood cells, uh, platelets, and plasma. Red blood cells are responsible for carrying oxygen to all of our organs and tissues, which is required for normal cellular metabolism. White blood cells are involved in the immune component, the immune response. So they are responding to bacterial and viral infections and tumor cells. Platelets are involved in the first step of clotting, and they will recruit the protein clotting factors that are carried in plasma to either stop bleeding or prevent bleeding. You mentioned different parts of your blood there. So when people give blood, is it always all of those components? That depends. For most of our donors, when we run, say, a mobile drive, donors are giving whole blood. And then we will separate that whole blood into component parts at our manufacturing facility. So we would take that blood and spin it down to separate the cells. Primarily, we're using the red cells. So we're separating that into the red cells and the plasma. However, we can also collect just platelets or just plasma or a combination of platelets and plasma, which involves an automated process on an instrument where we are drawing off the donor's blood, we separate out the components that we want, and then we give the donor everything back. And so this allows us to collect uh, greater quantities of platelets and plasma than what we could get in a single whole blood donation. 
Maria. I recently spoke to a super donor. He told me that he gives blood every two or three weeks, but he only gives whole blood the maximum of number times a year, which is six times. The other times he said he gives plasma and platelets, so his red blood cells are returned to him during the donation session. My name is Sean Brennan. Within the last few weeks or so, I sat in a donor chair for the 502nd time donating blood platelets and plasma. I've definitely done my fair share as far as donating and saving lives. 502 donations, that's, I, I can't even imagine that. Can you tell us what happens when you give blood? Donating a pint of whole blood, you're going to sit in a donor chair maybe seven to 10 minutes. You usually donate a unit or a pint of whole blood. Platelets and plasma, you'll be on a machine, an apheresis machine, where your blood is coming out of your body into a machine, it's being spun through a centrifuge, and your platelets and plasma are being separated, and then your blood is being pumped back into your body, and then your blood comes out again. It's the same thing it, it occurs, then your blood comes, goes back in. And so whether you're donating a unit or two units or three units, you can donate a triple when it comes to platelets and plasma. So just depending on what you're donating that day. And once you hit that level, the machine pumps any remaining blood in the machine in your body back into your body, and you're good to go. Dr. Lasky, is it normal to give whole blood sometimes and platelets or plasma other times? It depends on the donor and it depends on the needs at the time. Of course, not everyone either can tolerate the whole blood donation or they would prefer to donate platelets or plasma. Blood is quite a complex thing, isn't it? But what does blood mean to you at an emotional level? That's an interesting question. Whenever I am in a situation where I see donors actually sitting in the chair and allow us to collect blood from them, it's so powerful to me that they're sitting there and, and donating a piece of themselves and, and a piece of their life. And because I'm also distributing blood to hospitals, I hear about patient stories a lot. When I'm getting called because there's a triple car crash, you know that that gives you a certain image of what people might be dealing with at that very acute level versus when you hear a woman who's in delivery and she's having a massive uh, hemorrhage in delivery. You know, every one of these opens up a window into the life of someone who's experiencing something very traumatic and, and being the link from vein to vein like we like to say, from the donor to the recipient. And to see that connection of life is very powerful. Mm, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but would it be fair to say that it changes your view of humanity? Is that too big a thing to say? I, I think that's, that's right. I think that's a, a, a great way of looking at it because it's something that is, is universal. And we are connecting people in a way that, you know, most donors never meet the patients and most patients never meet their donors. And I think it's a really powerful testimony to how we are connected and how interdependent we are on one another and in a very palpable way. Thank you for your thoughts, Dr. Lasky. The super donor that I spoke to, Sean Brennan, he said that blood is a gift. Um, blood is vital to us all. I have a gift here in my body. And the only way to get it from point A to point B is to have eligible donors donating like myself. 
So people in critical need, patients in critical need can get these life-saving products. So it's a gift within my body and I, I feel so comfortable sharing it. And I'm so proud of my life-saving accomplishments. Let's talk about what happens when you give blood, Dr. Lasky. How is it that we can afford to give some blood away? That's a great question. And it's something that I think people may not realize is that blood transfusions are in a sense an organ transplant. It's just when you donate a kidney, you don't grow a new one. <laughs> so you can do that once. Um, where with blood, your bone marrow is generating new cells all the time. And so we do have restrictions based on what is considered safe for our donors. We do not want to do harm for our donors. So we can collect every 56 days for whole blood, for plasma and platelets, it's every seven days. And within that amount of time, the body is replenishing those cells. And so we can collect them when there's enough. Our donor that we interviewed, Sean, he spoke about having to fill in a questionnaire every single time that he donates blood. Um, what sort of questions do you ask potential donors and why do you ask them? The purpose of the questionnaire is really twofold. We are both trying to protect the safety and health of the donor, as well as the safety of the blood and ultimately, of course, the recipient. So we are screening for any health conditions whereby the blood donation would potentially harm the donor. We look for what their hemoglobin level is and, and their size. Individuals have to be at least 110 pounds because we take a standard amount of blood from everybody. Beyond that, we are looking for ensuring that individuals don't have heart or lung conditions where depleting their oxygen levels would bring harm to them. We're also looking for certain medications that might either alert us to something concerning in the donor. So we ask about antibiotics because we do not want to collect from somebody who has an infection. And then we're also looking for medications that might be a cause for deferral because of their potential to impact the recipient. Um, most importantly, we are concerned about teratogens, meaning, you know, can it harm a fetus? Can it harm the development of a growing fetus um, for a pregnant woman? We are also screening for behaviors that are considered risk factors for certain infectious diseases. So in the questionnaire, you're looking for behaviours that may mean that someone's blood could be more risky to the recipient. Correct. And risky behaviours doesn't necessarily mean what it may sound like. We are looking for maybe history of IV drug use because that will increase the chances of HIV or hepatitis B or C. Um, but we're also looking for behaviors such as tattoos and for places that may not have regulated tattoo facilities, then that's considered an exposure risk the way a needle stick at a hospital would be considered an exposure risk. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a tattoo, but we just want to make sure that people are, are doing it in a, an appropriate and safe environment. So you're trying to find out what exposures people have got, and then you can check whether those exposures may have affected the blood that they give to someone else. Correct. It's just an added layer of protection. 
Just one thing I want to clear up as well is that when I was a junior doctor, I worked in hospital and general practice, I was told I couldn't give blood as they needed us all to be ready to donate in an emergency. And we were their blood bank. Is that still true today? Like a walking blood bank? Yeah, all the junior doctors. They said, don't give blood. We need. We might need it in an emergency. <laughs> oh, interesting. I'm not aware that that's being done in civilian hospitals. I know that the, the military has what they call a walking blood bank. They have their blood type and they're tested for infectious diseases and periodically such that if someone needs a transfusion that they'll really do pretty much an arm to arm. I've never actually seen that, so I, I don't know exactly what's happening. Dr Lasky, thank you. Let's move on now to Sean's experience of blood donating. When we spoke to him, he said something that neither me nor Maria expected. I'm not a fan of needles. I, I don't like them. And if it wasn't for this life-saving cause, I wouldn't be having my healthy body stuck with needles. But if you can get past, say, the fear of needles, everything else is pretty easy. You go in, you have a little mini health check. They'll test your pulse, your blood pressure, your iron. You you answer a questionnaire and then you'll go in. And if you're donating a pint of whole blood, you can expect to have a needle in your arm, maybe seven to 10 minutes. And how about your veins? Don't they get a bit sore every time that you go to donate blood since you go so often? They, they don't actually, I mean, after donating over 500 times, I, I use both arms. You know, I go back and forth sometimes, my right, sometimes my left. I have pretty good veins. I, I do have some scar tissue on, on my veins, but that's just normal. But my veins don't hurt at all from donating or anything of that nature. I'm very active. I, I share with people, I haven't taken a sick day since November 1985. So over 36 years ago. So donating has never made me ill. That's really amazing. That's really amazing. Can I ask, uh, could you show me your arms? It, just the inside of your elbows. You said you've got scar tissue. Sure. You get some scar tissue right there, which is nothing major because it, it, the, the nurses and phlebotomists never have a problem as far as getting the needle in. And you can move it around a little bit on the vein if you want to shoot for a different area. But I've never had a problem with the needles going in, even with some scar tissue built up. <laughs> wow. That's the mark of your of your donations. My life-saving guns, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> life-saving guns indeed. <laughs> so obviously you can't see what that was, but Sean's cubital fossa, that's the crook in the elbow where the veins are, that looked normal to me, even after 502 blood donations. There wasn't any bruising or anything untoward to see. So... That's the blood coming out. But Dr. Lasky, from a medical point of view, what's happening when that pack of blood or a pack of blood cells is given to someone else? So when someone receives a red blood cell transfusion, hopefully nothing happens besides that they get the boost of of red cells and therefore oxygen carrying capacity in their body. However, that may vary depending on the patient, how many transfusions they've received. So for a trauma patient who just needs a lot of blood right at that moment, you know, if they can survive that acute period, there's very little consequence from the transfusion itself. 
However, if, say, for example, a patient who needs to be chronically transfused, like a patient with sickle cell disease, there's a number of reasons why this is fairly complex. But just on the surface, I like to say, you know, the red blood cells are like faces. They're all basically the same in terms of, you know, the eyes, nose, mouth, but we all look different. And different people have different combinations of proteins on their red cells. And so when you see a a red cell protein that is foreign to you, you'll make an antibody against it. And that's your normal immune response, responding to a foreign protein the way it would a bacteria or a virus. That's what it's supposed to do. But for someone who's receiving transfusions, that antibody can pose a problem for future transfusions because if they see that same protein again, it can have a cross-reaction, which can cause hemolysis, which means the red cells will break and that can be toxic to the body. So we try to avoid that whenever possible. So you're talking about something different from blood group reactions. In a sense, yes. So most people are familiar with the ABO blood groups or O positive, A negative, AB positive. But actually, so the A and the B are proteins on red cells. And the red cells actually have dozens of proteins that you probably have only heard about if you're in blood banking or if you have a patient or if you are a patient that has these complex needs, you otherwise probably wouldn't know about it. Um, Sometimes this becomes an issue in pregnancy when there's a fetal maternal hemorrhage and the mother is exposed to the baby's blood, she may form antibodies against some of these proteins that are foreign to her, which can impact future pregnancies. It's like a kind of a mini transfusion. So that's one of our biggest concerns for the cross-reactivity. Now, of course, going back to the main blood groups, we talk about compatibility in a person with a blood group A cannot receive a blood group B because that cross-reactivity is so strong and that can actually be fatal. Whereas some of these minor blood groups that we talk about, they're E, C, Kel, Duffy, they all have names. They may produce a strong reaction or they may produce a very mild reaction that can just be managed medically. Thank you. Could we move on to what is happening now in terms of blood shortages? How bad is it? Right now, the American Red Cross is experiencing a national blood crisis. We're at the lowest levels of inventory in over a decade, and relative to demand, it's devastating. We have experienced the compounding effects of the pandemic. We've seen a 10% reduction in our donor base since the beginning of the pandemic, and now we are in the middle of our winter surge with Omicron and the case count is higher than it's ever been. So that's impacting both donors as well as our staff. So that's impacting our ability to collect. It's resulting in drive cancellations. And we're in the winter and we usually have just winter weather that we're dealing with, snowstorms where we can't collect. And this is just compounded and compounded until now where we're in a position where we have about a quarter of our hospital demand is, is not being met right now. So it's it's quite scary. And is this shortage across the board or are there particular blood groups that you don't have enough donations for? Usually we are struggling with the O positive and O negative. O negative is universal and O positive is nearly universal. But right now, because this has been so prolonged, we are short on everything. 
So we are asking everybody across the board who's eligible to donate to please come in to donate. You know, the, the physicians right now at the hospital level are being forced to make decisions about where the blood is going to go. You know, who's going to get it right now and who has to wait. It's dire. There are some hospitals that have nothing and they're ordering just based on immediate patient need. And there's a lot of coordination between the, the blood supplier and our hospital partners just to ensure that we're getting the blood to the patients when, when they need it. But it's flying off our shelves as fast as we can collect it. It's sounding really, really difficult and must be keeping you all awake at night. It's, you know, I think people may not realize just how essential and critical blood is to healthcare and to saving lives. You know, blood is a life-saving therapy and there is, for the most part, no alternatives. We cannot manufacture blood and we can't stockpile it. So the need for blood is ongoing. And for those that are able, it's a small amount of their time and you're saving somebody's life. Maria Kahoot. Dr. Bialaski, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Lasky. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today. And thank you for listening. As always, you can read more on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the series on your podcast app. We'll be in conversation again next month. I'm Dr. Hilary Guite. And this is a Hivis Radio production for Healthline's Medical News Today. <laughs> <laughs>